Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire. My name's Richard Atwood. I'm delighted to be joined today by Comfort Eero. Comfort is Crisis Group's interim vice president, and she's joining today as co-host. Comfort, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about the coup in Myanmar. We are very fortunate to have with us Richard Horsey, Crisis Group's Myanmar expert. Some of you will remember that Richard was on the podcast a few months ago. There's really nobody better to help shed light on what's happening in Myanmar. Richard, welcome back. Thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks very much. Good to be with you again. Hello, Richard. So at the beginning of February, the military seized power in Myanmar, locked up top civilian leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, and declared a state of emergency. The past couple of weeks have seen these mass protests across the country. And we're going to talk today about why this has happened, about what the future might hold. And we'll talk especially about a report that Crisis Group put out this week looking at how the world should respond. But could we start, Richard, with a quick update of what's happening on the ground What's happening with the protests now? How are the country's military rulers responding to these thousands of people taking to the streets? So there are still tens of thousands uh, of people out on the streets, not only of the main cities, but also of you know, provincial towns demonstrating against this coup. If there's one thing that the people of Myanmar, who are divided on many different issues, seem to be able to agree on, it's that they don't want the military in charge of their country. Initially, it seemed that the military, that the security forces were allowing people to gather. There have been some reports over the last couple of days that they're starting to take a tougher line. Is, is that right? That's right. There still hasn't been a real concerted effort by the military to shut down these protests. I think we should worry when they really decide to do that because they have the capability and the history of using deadly violence against peaceful protests. 
At the moment, there are police barricades around sensitive areas. Uh, there has been some uh, violence against protesters, particularly outside of the commercial capital of Yangon, in, in Mandalay, uh, even in Naypyidaw, the capital. Uh, rubber bullets have been fired, slingshots have been used by the police, baton rounds and water cannon. And there has been at least one tragic fatality of a young woman who was who was shot with a live round. But so far, particularly in Yangon, the police have been holding the line, but not attempting to really shut down the demonstrations. The worrying thing is that those police lines are now being reinforced with frontline combat troops from the light infantry divisions, the kind of divisions that have been fighting uh, Myanmar's civil wars for the last decades, the kind of divisions that were responsible for the atrocious violence against the Rohingya. So having those kind of troops uh, with armoured personnel carriers, uh, with, with military equipment out at strategic locations around the country, that's a worry. So far, it's only being used as a threatening posture, but we have to worry, I think, about the time that the military may decide uh, to use those troops really to shut down the protests. Richard, before we get deeper into sort of the, the coup and everything that's happened after the coup and then how to get back out of the coup, can you walk us through why this coup happened? The country was on a democratic transition, but why did we see the coup and what sparked off the mass protest as well that has accompanied the coup? So I think the only person who can properly answer that question is General Minong Hlaing himself, because it came as a great surprise to most people in the country and most of the international community when this coup happened. There had been rumours, there had been threats from the military in the, in the days and the couple of weeks leading up to the coup. But the general impression of most people was that the military had their cake and was eating it too. They had put together a constitutional arrangement whereby an elected government controlled the civilian parts of government, but the military retained enormous influence, complete autonomy over security affairs. The three key security ministries were in military hands. They had a, a quarter of the parliamentary seats, giving them a blocking veto on any constitutional change. They really had put themselves into the position that they wanted, where all the difficult day-to-day -day work of running a country and an economy and a health system and an education system, all of the things that they had messed up terribly in their decades in charge, all of the things they were not interested in as soldiers were being handled by someone else. Mm -hmm. And that someone else, of course, was taking a lot of the flack for the Rohingya crisis and other things that Aung San Suu Kyi, not unfairly, I think, received uh, you know, a lot of criticism for that. But probably very unfairly, the military didn't receive as much criticism and the military chief, uh, Minong Hlaing, did not receive uh, the same kind of criticism as he might have done if he was in charge of the country at that point. So everyone felt that the military kind of had the perfect setup. So that raises a very fundamental question. Why then take the risk of doing a coup? And I think the answer to that, while it's difficult to be certain, is that this was a somewhat impulsive move by a general who coveted the presidency. And he believed, perhaps with some support of the rest of the officer corps, that the Aung San Suu Kyi government was not handling things very well, that he could do better, that they weren't handling the economy very well, that they weren't handling the peace process very well. In a, in a sense, he wanted to be the president. She had all the power. And so he hoped that in the elections in November last year, 
there would be enough opposition to Aung San Suu Kyi, not necessarily the military established party, which I think even the military must have realised was pretty much a spent force. But he hoped that ethnic minority parties and national opposition parties and all of the disagreements with, with the Aung San Suu Kyi government that were being voiced by, by certain political leaders, he hoped that that would all come together and he could, in a sense, bring together an anti-NLD, anti-Aung San Suu Kyi coalition with him at the head. Well, as we know, the results of the election didn't deliver that at all. They delivered a, a resounding victory for Aung San Suu Kyi. And so I think he just switched to plan B. And that was a, a coup. And again, a hope, I think, that that coup could put into place an administration that was made up not just of the military, like in the bad old days, but that would bring in those opposition forces. The problem is, he's got the whole country united against him right now. And most people do not want to be tainted by his administration. So, Richard, a, a coup, in the way you portrayed it, tied up to some degree with the personal ambitions of the Army Chief of Staff, Ming Online. But as we've written in the paper and as you've talked about, the military, the Chief of Staff, have a couple of really big problems. As you say, the coup is extremely unpopular. The military itself is extremely unpopular. What unites, as you say, many, many people is the desire not to return to an era of military rule. That's one problem. And the second problem is that Aung San Suu Kyi, Although she's lost some of her international standing because of her response to the Rohingya crisis, she's enormously popular in the country. So what is the military strategy over the coming year? They've said that they're going to go to elections in a year's time, but how do they change that sort of fundamental equation so the elections don't deliver exactly the same results that the elections did some months ago? I think that's a key question. And I, you know, I think that this situation has departed far from the military's script. I think it's fairly clear from the initial speeches and statements that the commander-in-chief gave uh, immediately before the coup and then after the coup, it's pretty clear what his script was. To take Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD off the political landscape, to have a short, sharp military coup that, that would be um, non-violent, that would you know, run the country efficiently as, as soldiers can do, and that would fix the electoral playing field. So at the end of a year, there could be new elections, which would be dominated not by the NLD, but by a constellation of other parties and forces, and that Minong Lying, the hunter chief, would emerge from that as the elected head of the country. Now, that was the script. The situation has not cooperated. The enormous outpouring of anti-military sentiment, the huge, almost organic reaction from all walks of society to say we don't want to go back to that situation means that Min Hong has a huge problem now because he can't get on with the business of running the country efficiently, slightly better than Aung San Suu Kyi did with some degree of support, maybe even in some quarters, and finish the rest of the script. He's now got to focus all his attention on consolidating the coup. And that's going to be a long and difficult process because not only do we have hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets loudly demonstrating against this. We also have many, many uh, civil servants, but also people from other walks of life who have followed the call for a general strike, what they're calling a civil disobedience movement, who are not going to work, who are not doing the jobs that the government expects them to do. So, you know, you have the banking system is teetering on the edge of collapse because bank staff are not going in, both government staff and private sector staff. 
the power generation sector, most of the engineers involved have walked out. And so the electricity grid is close to collapsing. There's only a few skeleton staff that are, that are keeping that going. And so across different government functions and departments, things are not working. And, and I think that's the biggest trouble he has uh, right now. In other words, it will take him a lot of effort and probably a lot of time and probably a lot of authoritarian clampdown to impose his authority before he can even start thinking about his agenda. And that means that if he thought he was going to be one of those benevolent dictators, you know, the ones that don't cause too much fuss in the international community, the ones that can kind of get away with a coup because, you know, they're not that awful, it's not going to work. And, and so whether he intended to or not, his administration is being forced down this authoritarian uh, road, which will only increase the rejection of the military as rulers, and it will only make it more difficult for him to convince anyone, domestically or internationally, you know, that he's getting control of the situation. And yet, Richard, when we listen to your analysis and we read all the work that you've done over successive years, the one thing that you've been consistent about is about the strength of the military to hold to ignore international but also domestic pressure. What would be different this time round? I mean, I've listened very carefully to your analysis and you said that more people are determined to come out this time round. Will that be the difference? Will that determination be what, what sustains the protest movement? Is that what will shift the, the military? Or will the military buckle down and take on a more authoritarian bend this time round? So I think, yes, it's, it's very clear what is motivating the popular rejection of this coup. It's the determination of people not to live under another generation of military rule, the determination that this country, which has seen 10 years of not perfect democracy by any means at all, but 10 years of greater hope, 10 years of having a civilian leader, 10 years where people felt that just perhaps tomorrow could be better than today. They feel that all of that has been taken away from them and they worry that the prospects for them and for their children have suddenly got very dark. So that's what's prompted this outpouring. The question is, will it work and what will happen next? You know, I think there's really three scenarios we could think about in terms of where this situation goes. One is that the coup fails, that the military has just bitten off more than it can chew here, that it can't handle the popular protests, that it decides it's made a mistake. I think that's extremely unlikely. It's extremely unlikely from the mindset of the military in Myanmar. It's extremely unlikely looking back at Myanmar history that the military would climb down and back down. And it would probably, they would feel, be quite dangerous for them to, to do so, to show their weakness and lose control of the story from here and, and possibly personally dangerous for them as well. So I think it's very unlikely that the coup will fail. They have the, the military ability to hang on to power. What they may not have is the ability to effectively govern the country once they've, they've held on to power. So the other, you know, unlikely scenario is, is that their plan kind of works, that the demonstrations peter out, that they get some breathing space, that they don't have to crack down too hard, there's not too many uh, killings, they don't have to be too repressive, that they can move ahead for one year, do what they plan to do. That also seems extremely unlikely. The people are just not accepting this. And even if they could rig the elections so that Minong Hain came out as president, it's not clear that anyone would be willing to just move on. So that leaves us with a whole different set of third scenarios where the coup doesn't fail, but neither does it succeed. And where the country then is grappling not only with you know, a new, deeply unpopular authoritarian regime that is 
fearful for its own uh, security, that is insecure, that is clamping down on people. But a regime that also then at the same time as dealing with that problem has to deal with all of the problems that Myanmar was already facing. A failing peace process, raging armed conflict in certain places, a massive economic impact of the global COVID pandemic. Uh, All of these things that any government would have difficulty dealing with, but especially one that is constantly looking over its shoulder and doesn't feel that that it in any sense has the country behind it. And that's the scenario we're in, I think. So, Richard, let's move to the geopolitics of the of the crisis in a moment. But you mentioned the armed conflicts. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think the coup means for Myanmar's ethnic conflicts? Armed groups, some of them essentially armies, tens of thousands strong. Some of them have been fighting the Myanmar military for decades. What does the coup mean for those groups and, and those conflicts? So I think the answer to that is actually quite complex. There's no simple answer to that. You know, in Milong Hlaing's mind, the ethnic armed groups, the ethnic political parties, the ethnic communities were part of that constituency that he hoped he could rally to his side, the anti-NLD constituency. And initially, after the coup, a number of ethnic leaders, a number of ethnic political parties, even an armed group or two, did engage with the new military administration, accept positions in the new military administration, and maybe look as if they were positioning to see what advantage they could get Uh, from this situation. But as the protests in central Myanmar grew and grew, as the whole population basically started rejecting this, those ethnic party leaders, those ethnic armed group leaders are now faced with a difficult challenge. They have to balance their own narrow strategic interests and what they could possibly gain from a military that's a bit distracted and on the back foot and needs to keep them quiet versus not being seen to go against the tide of history, not being seen to go against the will, not only of the Bama population in the center of the country, but many of their own population as well, uh, who are also out on the streets demonstrating. And so we've seen a bit of a shift in the first few days, a sort of willingness to engage, accept positions, uh, talk about cutting deals, and now a slightly more reluctant position emerging. So, you know, I think we'll see a mixed picture. We'll see some groups like the United Wa State Army, uh, the largest non-state armed group in the world, perhaps 20,000 well-armed troops controlling territory the size of Belgium. This is a a de facto mini-state. It's run in the style of the Chinese Communist Party with a Politburo. There's no democracy there. You know, I think they will just probably sit tight and remain aloof from the situation. That's what they've done so far. You'll have other groups that feel that while the military is distracted elsewhere, it's a good time for them to press their territorial claims, either against the Tamador or against each other. And we've already seen both of those things happening in Shan State. Clashes between one of the Shan armed groups and the Tamador, uh, and also clashes between two different armed groups in Shan State in territory that they both claim. What I don't think we'll see is any kind of, you know, united response from the armed groups and ethnic communities, you know, joining the demonstrations with force of arms. And I think that's probably a very good thing. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to bring RPGs to, to peaceful protests. We've seen what happens when that occurs in other countries in the world with catastrophic effect. These are peaceful demonstrations. I think the moment you start getting non-state armed groups mixed up in it, it is a very dangerous moment. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking to Richard Horsey. So, Richard, let's talk about the international reaction. And and around the world, the response has varied. The US, other Western countries have strongly condemned the coup. Japan has taken quite a tough line. 
Other Asian countries, uh, especially China, have been more muted. Who, if anyone, is influential with the generals? Whose response are they going to be watching most carefully? No, I think the question is leverage or influence to achieve what? If it's about reversing the coup, then I don't think anyone really has that kind of leverage, not the kind of leverage that they would be willing to deploy. If it's about influencing the course of events, then yes, I think there is influence. China is very influential. It has traditionally protected Myanmar in the UN Security Council and continues to do so, not unconditionally. There's a cost attached to that. There are limits to that. But, you know, it is not going to allow this situation to be mainly resolved in a multilateral forum like the Security Council. Any pressure or leverage that China is going to bring to bear is going to be bilateral. Uh, so there is a Chinese element here. I think the broader Asian region, uh, India, uh, ASEAN, uh, Japan, Korea, all have a close political and economic ties. That means they have leverage, but it also means there's a limit to how much they will want to use that leverage. They won't want to imperil their uh, diplomatic relations because they have a lot of issues of concern that they have with Myanmar, and they won't want to imperil their economic linkages either. The West, in a sense, you know, has the luxury of distance, doesn't have that significant economic ties with Myanmar, but in a sense that also means the West doesn't have that much leverage. Whatever the West will do will probably be peripheral to the calculations in Naypyidaw. And that means that when the West acts, it has to be cognizant of the fact that it should not do harm. Whatever steps it takes, which are, which are absolutely necessary to voice opposition to this, to condemn this, uh, and even to impose certain sanctions uh, to reinforce that, it shouldn't damage the economy of the country and it shouldn't primarily hurt the people of the country. And that's actually a very difficult balance to strike. Richard, can we focus on sanctions? Because we've already seen sort of an opening salvo already by President Biden. He's already approved sanctions on the coup leaders, their business interests and their close kin and redirected more than, I think, 40 million US aid from government to civil society as well. I mean, in the past, you've often cautioned the international community, particularly the West, from its traditional playbook of using sanctions as a pressure point. Before we delve into what is possible going forward and the many options um, available both to Western governments but also to the immediate neighbourhood, can you walk us through that delicate history of sanctions in Myanmar? Yes, so in the 1990s and 2000s, Myanmar was the most sanctioned country in the world by the US and a number of other jurisdictions, more so than North Korea, more so than, than, than any other country. There were no multilateral sanctions in effect, but the US had punishing import and export bans, total import and export bans, ban on the export of financial services, which basically cut the entire country out of the uh, global dollar financial system, as well as having arms embargoes and and targeted uh, sanctions on individuals, and so on. So those were punishing, crippling sanctions. The people who were least affected by that were the generals themselves, because they were in charge of the state. And so firstly, given that they had close trading relations with all of their neighbors that were never affected by the sanctions because they were not multilateral, they were always going to have enough to keep them going. The problem was that it isolated the country, it damaged the economy, it hurt the ordinary people. 
You know, the generals were able to open offshore accounts in Singapore and other jurisdictions. The generals were able to shift to euros to avoid the uh, U.S. financial sanctions. The generals were able to give out, you know, mining permits, natural resource extraction permits, monopoly privileges to their uh, associates. And, you know, those were incredibly profitable businesses on the basis of those monopolistic controls and abilities. And that meant that they were raking in money in the jade exports, in timber exports, in, in, in all of these things. The people who paid the price were the ordinary people of the country who weren't able to circumvent sanctions, ordinary small businesses and so on. And it completely skewed Myanmar's external diplomatic and economic engagement towards China. And that was seen by all of the country, including the generals themselves, as a very unsatisfactory position to be in. And that's to a sense, still the, the, the sentiment today, the, the generals are not keen on China and not keen on being too close to China, but they may not have much option given the path that they've chosen to go down. So, Richard, let me just push you on that a little bit. So what role then, if any, did sanctions play in the political and economic liberalisation that took place 10 years ago? I mean, you've argued that they weren't a core of it, but did they play some role? Did they have some influence on the general's decision back then? to open up political space and share power with civilians? The sanctions themselves didn't have any impact on that decision to open up. That's not just an academic analysis. That's based on my discussions with the architects of that opening in 2011, with the key people who were around at the time. And they were very clear. You know, once they had decided to open up the country in 2011, the sanctions were a huge impediment to doing so. They wanted to rebalance towards the West they wanted to liberalize, they wanted to open up to foreign direct investment, and crippling sanctions made that impossible. So they certainly wanted the sanctions lifted once they had decided to move in that direction. But the previous generation of generals who handed over to them in 2011 did not hand over because of sanctions. This had been their kind of carefully crafted plan for years to draft the 2008 constitution that would give them power behind the scenes and to hand over to a quasi-elected government. That was, that was the plan. Um, and in a sense, the reforms from 2011 took this plan off track. They allowed Aung San Suu Kyi a place in the political landscape. They ultimately led to her being the de facto leader of the country. And that was not something that the older generation of military had, had thought about before. So the older generation of military, they just plodded along with their plan in the face of international sanctions and, and isolation because it wasn't really international. When we speak of these sanctions, it was Western sanctions and Western isolation. And while they might have liked to have a, a good relationship with the West, it wasn't essential. So it didn't cut them off from any financial flows. It didn't cut them off from banking services. Being cut out of the international dollar transaction system hurted business that needed to trade. It didn't hurt the generals who were trading with their neighbors, with China, with Southeast Asia. It didn't impact them at all. I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, in, in a nutshell, Richard, your message is that the, the generals have been successfully in the past impervious to different sanctions regimes. And in a sense, the formula has been counterproductive because we've seen the military sort of double down. So yes, at one level, we're wrong to think that sanctions can alter dynamics on the ground. But what about this time round? If not sanctions, what alternatives are on the ground? You know, so it's true that the generals not only survived, but in many cases thrived under that crippling sanctions regime of the past. And it was the quite recent past. So they 
still remember that and know they can survive it. What that means is that I think they are not terrified of these looming sanctions because they've been there before. This is not a country, firstly, that wants to be uh, fully integrated into the global system as, as a top priority and therefore feels it can't have sanctions. Neither are sanctions some sort of ominous threat that they don't fully understand because they've been there. The problem with sanctions, in my view, is, is not a black or white one of should there be sanctions or not. There is a place for sanctions. Sanctions are important, but they have to be part of a diplomatic strategy, of a broader strategy. They can't achieve their uh, goals in and of themselves. And the problem with the past was that Myanmar just wasn't an important enough place for policymakers, particularly in the West, but in other countries as well, to really think through the hard work of how are we actually going to bring about change? When they looked at that, it looked very difficult. It looked like they didn't have any options. But as we all know, policymakers can't just do nothing. The political imperative is there that they have to do something. So faced with a situation where they didn't feel they had any good options, signing a piece of paper, a sanction, was a very easy response that enabled them to demonstrate that they were taking action and quickly move on to the next crisis that they were dealing with. So the criticism of sanctions is not just the failure of sanctions themselves. It's the fact that they weren't integrated into a theory of change. They weren't integrated into a, into a strategy. And so the same now, it's not to say that there shouldn't be sanctions. Sanctions are critical in signaling. They are critical in preventing bad actors from having access to the international financial system. They have many functions. What they don't achieve is regime change. What they don't achieve is forcing uh, generals who've already factored in international uh, reactions into their game plan to suddenly do a U-turn. And so we have to be realistic about the level of leverage. We have to be realistic about what the objectives are that are achievable. And that doesn't mean at all lowering the, the bar of standards. That doesn't mean uh, accepting the situation. But in a very pragmatic way, when we're thinking about what policy tools could be useful in moving it in a positive way, we have to be realistic. There are limits. And what that means is that the countries who have that leverage but are reluctant to use it and the countries that don't have it but are pushing for it to be used have to come together. So the region needs to talk to the rest of the international community because you're right, Comfort. I mean, it's not in the interest of anyone. Uh, it's not in the interest of China. It's not in the interest of ASEAN to have Myanmar back as a problem for the world, as a problem for the region. Because the problem from China's point of view and many other countries in Southeast Asia is not that this is an undemocratic government with the military having uh, the leading role. We could point to several countries where that is the case. Most countries in the region don't have free and fair elections after all. The problem is that this is being rejected completely inside Myanmar. It leads to an unstable Myanmar. It leads to a dysfunctional Myanmar. And it leads to a Myanmar that will be causing constant friction in international relations. And so that's the conversation that needs to happen between the region and everybody else. What are the things that we can influence here in a positive direction? How can we do it? And how can we work together? It doesn't mean everyone has to do the same thing, but they have to not be working against each other. Um, Richard, in the paper we have out this week, we offer some ideas for policymakers in how to navigate some of these difficulties with sanctions. And we've also have some ideas about Asian and Western powers preserving space to work together, especially to prevent violence. There's also a line in the briefing about the importance of keeping lines of communication open to the generals. Do you want to say a word about that? 
Yes, I think this is also important. This is not about uh, being nice to them. This is not about giving them legitimacy. You know, there has to be a very clear line that they are not the legitimate government of the country, that they took power illegally, but they're going to be around. The military has been the key institution in Myanmar since independence uh, 70 years ago. It's going to continue in some way, shape or form to be an incredibly powerful and important institution going forward. And the regime that has taken power in this coup is almost certainly not going anywhere anytime soon. So that means that channels of communication are vital, if only to express the very clear and direct views of the world about what has happened, uh, but also to limit the worst case scenarios here. You know, mass violence against protesters, the civil conflict spinning out of control. These are all things which should be of direct concern to everyone especially the region. Uh, and that's where you need channels of communication. And, uh, and there are very few, actually, at the moment. Richard, could I back up a little bit and just ask you to reflect on this period over the last 10 years of political and economic liberalisation in the country? Obviously, it's brought enormous benefits to many in Myanmar. That's reflected in the sort of depth of anger at military rule that you know, so many people on the streets but it's hardly been a problem-free decade, right? Of course, there's the military's continued influence in politics, which you talked about, the awkward power sharing that it entered into with the NLD. But there's also the way civilian leaders themselves have behaved, their silence, acquiescence as the Rohingya were massacred, forced out of the country. They're playing to ethnic nationalism. So even if, as you say, by some sort of extraordinary circumstance, you could return to the previous status quo, that's not going to fix all the country's problems. In some ways, what you actually need is much deeper constitutional reform, much deeper societal change. Given what's happened over the last couple of weeks, do you see any way of getting there now? I think it's very difficult to see a path to that, but you're right that that's essential. We can't pretend that Myanmar before the coup was a place that was effectively dealing with the deep problems and crises that it was facing. And so... If there is going to be any positive, hopeful future for the country, it has to involve not only some sort of deal and accommodation between the NLD and the, and the generals. In a sense, that would just get us back to the other divisions in the country between the Burman majority and the minorities who feel they've been excluded from politics, marginalized, mistreated, and so on. And the, uh, the religious divisions as well that we've seen, particularly with the with the Rohingya as well. So, you know, there has to be in the minds of the, of the new generation, I think, a kind of different template for a future Myanmar. It's not about restoring the almost unworkable, you know, quote unquote, disciplined democracy that the 2008 constitution uh, mandates. It's about really addressing the nation building that hasn't happened uh, and that's not primarily a constitutional issue. It's not a set of constitutional scholars sitting in a darkened room and coming up with, with, with a great you know, document that's going to solve that. This is about raw power and the way it is distributed in the country, in fact, not on paper. And so you know, there needs to be a reimagining of the future of this country as a place where different ethnic and religious groups can live together and where power is held not only by popularly elected people, but by people who genuinely represent the diversity of the country. That has to be the future. I must say that it was looking pretty hard to get there before the coup. Now that we've had the coup, that objective looks even further off. But it is still, it still has to be the objective. 
Richard, thank you so much for joining us as ever. That was really very, very rich and, and illuminating. It's a depressing picture, but I hope also some ideas for policymakers around the world grappling with how to respond. Richard, really, thank you very much again. Not at all. It's been uh, great to be on again, Richard and Comfort. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. As ever, really enlightening to talk to Richard, despite this very dispiriting picture in Myanmar. I would really urge people to look at the report we talked about. It's out this week. It's called Responding to the Myanmar Coup. It has some really detailed ideas about what the world should do, particularly on what sanctions can do and what they can't do, and on the important difference, the important distinction between, on the one hand, individual targeted sanctions or measures targeting military businesses, and on the other, the type of broad sectoral sanctions that will hurt the economy, hurt Myanmar's people, and which governments should obviously uh, avoid. So that and all our Myanmar work is on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. Please do check it out. A big thank you to Comfort for joining this week. As ever, a huge thanks to our Crisis Group team producing this. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. If you have a comment, a question, a rating, a review, we very much welcome those. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you can join us again next week. Hold your fire. A podcast by the International Crisis Group. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.